This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Realm presents Silverwood, Episode 9. Darkness falls like a black curtain on the secluded town of Silverwood. There is no twilight, no magic hour, particularly on this night. One moment, a hazy, gray, pollen-thick sky blankets the town and surrounding woods, casting long shadows into the narrow alleyways and deep valleys. In the next moment, streetlights blink on overhead, fireflies dancing their golden nighttime lullaby, and the woods grow dark and deep as the depths of hell. And all throughout, the reaping continues. Now, hours after the darkness has engulfed the environs, the slaughter reaches a frenzied peak. The crow, silent and dark and sleek, its brittle beak still stinging from its earlier assault on Carl Hendricks's windshield, orbits the town proper in a wide, lazy circle before gliding to a stop on a telephone wire. From its lofty perch, the crow hears the annoying trill of a telephone ringing in the sheriff's office. A muffled voice, edged with panic, answers the phone, speaks for a brief moment, and hangs up. The telephone begins to ring again almost immediately. The crow's beady black eyes dart to the north, where the orange glow of flames flickers along the horizon. Silverwood High School is located in that direction, as are St. Stephen's Catholic Church and the YMCA. The heavy wooden door marking the entrance to the Silverwood Tavern slams open, and a man runs outside into the street below. His flannel shirt is in tatters, and he is bleeding from the mouth and nose. He squeals in terror as two stocky women emerge from the tavern and chase after him down Main Street. One woman is brandishing a kitchen knife, the other a grease-stained spatula. 
Just before they reach the intersection, a battered pickup truck skids around the corner at high speed. The front fender smashes into the fleeing man's pelvis, nearly folding him in half like a beach chair. And then he is under the tires, the meaty thump of rubber on flesh and bone, followed by the wet crunch of the man's head exploding like a ripe watermelon. The two women dive and roll to safety, one on each side of the oncoming truck, like a choreographed stunt from an action movie. The truck roars on, no sign of a brake being touched, before it slams into the front facade of the Silverwood Savings and Loan. The pickup's rusty hood crumples on impact. The driver, we recognize him now as Silverwood's longtime postman, Dave Harry, hurtles through the windshield and splatters against the bank's brick wall, leaving behind a bloody smear. And then the truck explodes with a loud, echoing whoomp. The crow twitches its wings as a wave of scorching heat washes over it, but it remains perched on the wire, a silent sentinel to the encroaching madness. Its unblinking eyes reflect the burning truck, tiny orange jack-o'-lanterns glimmering in the smoke-filled night sky. It's only when sirens erupt in the distance that the crow takes flight, heading north to the spreading wall of flames, following the sound of gunshots and the dying town screams. Carl crept to the top of the rocky hill, knees aching, nose running, and edged behind a tree. He peered around the side into the shadows, feeling the bite of rough bark against his cheek, and smiled. His prey, a middle-aged woman dressed in yoga pants and a bright red vest, stumbled down the trail. She was dripping water as if she'd recently fallen into a river. She was alone and whimpering. He smiled, amused by her attire. The red vest made him think of Star Trek's red shirts. The nameless cast members were always the first to die. All yours, his god whispered in his ear. It's time to sow. At first, Carl had followed the sound of screams through the dark woods. But there had been too many, and coming from all directions, and he had gotten confused and lost. So he'd stopped and remained perfectly still, until his senses had zeroed in on the sobs and whimpers of one particular target. Then he tracked her to this section of the woods. He carried a knife in each hand, a large butcher's blade in his right, sharp and heavy enough to cut through flesh and bone, and a smaller but no less sharp hunting knife in his left. He had stuffed a flashlight in the back pocket of his jeans, but he didn't want to use it unless he absolutely had to. He knew he was seeing with God's eyes now, and much preferred the cover of darkness. The woman stumbled closer. Carl tensed. Time to sow. And stepped onto the path, blocking her way. Little Red Riding Hood, I presume? He grinned, sharpening the knives against each other. The woman shrieked and turned to flee. She had taken no more than three or four steps when the hunting knife plunged into the center of her back. She dropped to her knees, gasping in pain. On your way to grandmother's house, no doubt. 
Carl slid the knife out and turned the woman onto her back. She squirmed in the dirt, staring up at him with wide, terrified eyes. And that would make me the big bad wolf now, wouldn't it? Please, God, please, the woman begged, trying to shield herself with her hands. Carl's eyes darkened. He leaned down, lips drawn back into a snarl. How dare you speak that name, you charlatan whore? There's only one god in these woods tonight, and he's mine. Rattlesnake quick. He flicked the hunting knife in front of him, slicing, and a pair of the woman's outstretched fingers tumbled to the ground. She screamed and clutched her bloody hand to her chest. Carl's lips curled into a cruel smile. He tossed the knife to the ground, raised the butcher's blade high above his head with both hands. In your glorious name, my lord. And just as he was about to bring it down into the center of the woman's tear-streaked face, a voice called out from behind him. Hey, mister, what you doing? Carl lowered the butcher knife and glanced over his shoulder. A young boy wearing a Cub Scout uniform stood behind him. Carl relaxed his face into a friendly grin. Hey there, young man. What are you doing out in these woods all by yourself this late at night? The boy stepped closer, his hands hidden behind his back. Who said I was by myself? Bushes shook and twigs broke underfoot as three more boys stepped out of the shadows and surrounded Carl. All three wore scout uniforms, smeared with something dark and wet. Two of the boys carried aluminum baseball bats, and the third held some kind of fancy slingshot in his hands. Carl didn't like the look of them, not one bit. There was something wrong with their eyes. They looked hungry. Please help me, the woman on the ground pleaded. The boys ignored her, inching closer, tightening the circle around Carl. Carl got to his feet. Hey now, boys. The first boy who had appeared on the trail behind Carl shifted his hands into view. He was holding a tire iron. Carl held the butcher knife out in front of him and swung in a slow circle. I don't know what you think you're going to do. But you'd better... A rock the size of a golf ball struck him in the forehead, bringing gold sparks behind his eyes, dazing him. He staggered toward the boy holding the slingshot and sensed movement behind him. He started to turn, but was too late. A baseball bat slammed into the back of his legs, dropping him to his knees. The butcher knife slipped from his hand and disappeared into the shadows. Get him! One of the boys yelled. And then they were on him like wild animals, gouging his face, clawing at his eyes, battering his arms and legs and head. One by one, Carl wrestled and peeled the boys off and flung them into the night. And one by one, they returned, more determined than ever, like rats swarming a chunk of rotten meat in a city sewer. Tiny fingers reached into his mouth and fish-hooked his lower lip. He tried to bite them, but the fingers were too quick. He took a kick to the groin, and then another rock struck him, this time in the back of his neck. And Carl decided that was it. He'd had enough. He took off running down the path, his hands curled around the back of his head to protect it from more rocks, 
his long strides allowing him to quickly outdistance his pursuers. But Carl soon tired, his age, bad knees, and lack of physical fitness catching up to him. Veering off the trail, gasping for breath, he crawled on his hands and knees and hid behind a fallen tree and waited for the boys to pass. As the sound of approaching footsteps drew near, Carl held his breath and prayed. The footsteps slowed and then stopped. He could hear their voices clearly now. Where'd he go? He couldn't have gone far, the fat bastard. When we catch him, I'm going to use his own knife on him. Come on. The footsteps started up again, gaining urgency and then quickly faded. The forest grew quiet again except for the sound of the woman fleeing up the path and a few muffled shrieks in the distance. Carl started to emerge from his hiding place, but then he stopped and remained on one knee, holding his breath again, listening. What if it's a trick, he thought. What if one of them, or all of them, just pretended to leave and they're waiting for me on the trail? They're just kids, he whispered. What are you so afraid of? But kneeling there in the dark woods, battered and bleeding, he knew better. They weren't just kids. Something was wrong with them. He eased to his feet and crept back toward the path, careful not to make too much noise. Once he'd reached the trail, he searched in both directions, trying to decide which was the safer route. The three boys had run to his left, and the other boy and woman waited on the path to his right. He gazed into the darkness ahead and considered sneaking off in that direction. All he wanted to do was get back to his truck and head for the nearest rest stop, but he didn't have a clue where the truck was located. Please, Lord, bless me with your guiding light, he prayed, and waited for an answer, but none was forthcoming. His god remained silent. He was just about to head back in the direction he'd come from when a shadow shifted in the woods ahead. Who's there? He called out, hating the frightened sound of his voice. The dark figure moved closer. Carl released a deep breath as he made out the shape of a woman approaching, especially once he confirmed that her hands were empty. Hey, lady, where'd you come from? Some weird shit going on in these woods tonight. The woman didn't answer. She just kept coming, slowly, steadily, finally emerging fully into view. And that's when Carl felt the warm burst of urine stream down his legs. The woman wasn't human. Carl didn't know what in the holy hell she was, but he knew she wasn't a human being. For starters, she was naked. And she didn't have skin. He doubted she even had bones anywhere on her body. Instead, she was made up of some kind of glistening black goo. Carl had once read a comic book he'd found left in a booth on a roadside diner. It had been called Swamp Man or Swamp Thing or Swamp Something or Other. And had been all about a green slime monster that lived in the depths of some swampy marsh. That's what the creature standing in front of him, reaching out for him, reminded him of. 
All these thoughts ricocheted through Carl's terrified mind in the span of several seconds. That brief flash of time right before the slime monster smiled at him, revealing stained black gooey teeth. And right before Carl's fear-frozen feet finally woke up just in time for him to take off, running into the dark woods behind him. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Several miles away, deep in the heart of the forest, Christina stood on the front porch of her cabin, determined to make things right again. Tasha and Jeremy, and Emilio's reanimated corpse, waited patiently a short distance behind her. Why can't Emilio speak? Jeremy asked, still holding his lover's hand. Because it was practice, Christina explained. I wasn't sure I could do it. I brought him back and a few of the others, but I didn't... reach far enough. Reach? I don't know how else to describe it. I reach out with my mind. It worked on a few who were nearby. But now that I know I can do it, I can bring them all back to life. Everyone who ever died here, no matter how long ago it was. And then everything will be okay. Jeremy seemed to accept this answer, but she felt resistance and hesitation in Tasha's thoughts. Christina pushed with her mind, and Tasha slowly smiled. That's wonderful, sweetie. Thank you, Mommy. Christina nodded and lifted her hands to the night sky. She flexed her fingers and closed her eyes as her face settled into a mask of meditation. Then she bowed her head. For a long, breathless moment, nothing happened. The forest around them seemed frozen in time, silent and motionless. Then, rising in intensity and volume, there came a crackling sound from all around the cabin, from the ground it was built upon, from the trees that surrounded it, and from the sky above it. A faint whiff of electrical charge suffused the night air, as if they were standing beneath a transmission tower. Once again, thunder boomed. Christina raised her face again to the night sky. Her eyes flickered open, then closed again, and she reached up as high and as far as her arms would allow. And it was then that her fingertips began to glow with a strange greenish light, and the forest came to life around them. Treetops danced and whispered secrets to each other in a sudden strong breeze, branches swaying and creaking noisily, threatening to break off and crash to the ground. The gust reached their faces, carrying with it the stench of rotten meat, the foul smells of death and decay. There were words in the wind, too, 
terrible, rasping voices that spoke a language none of them could understand. Deep inside Lab 04, the sap's attention was distracted from its feast as that other power, the power it had sensed earlier, ramped up again. The sap could ignore it no longer, not when the opening of the doorway was so close. The entity decided to investigate. Still clutching Emilio's cold hand, Jeremy put his other arm around Tasha and pulled her close. He was trying to be brave, but was more frightened than he'd ever been in his entire life. And the fear only deepened when he saw that greenish glow had reached Christina's eyes. As his terror mounted, Christina's hold on his mind began to wane. He didn't think to question Emilio's condition yet, but he did have the presence of mind to think that if green lasers started shooting out of Christina's eyes or fingertips, he was out of there, with or without the others at his side. Christina heard and felt none of Jeremy's doubts. She was somewhere far, far away, floating alone in the dark place she felt most at home in, focused only on making things right again. Once she was finished, there would be no more death, and that would please Tasha and Jeremy. She'd already brought Emilio and a few others back, just as she had once brought back her favorite teddy bear. She would bring all of them back this time, everyone who had ever died in this forest. Christina flexed her fingers again, and the greenish glow intensified, summoning the newly undead, raising up her army of unearthly marionettes. Just wait until Mommy sees what I have done. Just wait until Jeremy sees. They will be so happy. They will be so proud of me. A satisfied smile spread across Christina's face. All throughout the forest surrounding Silverwood, the ground began to shudder and ripple. Long buried roots snapped in pieces. Holes that should have remained forever hidden broke open, and the reeking rush of long dead air seeped into the shadowy forest. And then things started to move in the darkness, stealthily and with purpose. Silverwood was alive with the dead. Dirt-crusted hands grasped for purchase, reaching for the surface. Cracked fingernails, bright red polish long faded, clawed at the earth. Rotten mouths opened and closed for the first time in years, blackened teeth clicking and clacking, splitting decayed lips, spilling spirals of dark soil and coils of writhing earthworms to the forest floor. Salvatore Boom Rossi and his lover, buried beneath the loam since 1963, were nothing more than brittle, moldering bones, yet they wormed their way from the dirt, empty sockets staring sightlessly. Even less was left of the victims of the 1849 smallpox outbreak, but their remaining bits wriggled their way to the surface, squirming amid fallen leaves. 
the charred remains of Jennifer and Chet, who had once kidnapped Christina, only to become her playthings, returned in confusion and fear, remembering the wildfire that had killed them and the monstrosity they'd been fleeing. The residents of the Silverwood Inn came back to life again. The burned-out wreckage of the inn did not return with them. The Silverwood Cemetery was full of activity as departed townspeople enjoyed an infernal homecoming. Monica and her parents, who were all murdered in 2011 by her teacher in a fatal attraction gone horribly awry, embraced. Teenager Billy met up with the rest of his gang. Their battered corpses had seen better days, but they didn't care. There was trouble for them to find. Dr. Jay Moore returned as well, and the first thought in the rotting tissue of his dead brain was to return to the old sea facilities and see who was still around. He shambled off in the direction of the woods before remembering his wife and his son, Caleb. Then he turned toward their house. As the pollen drifted down from the darkness, driving the living to insanity and depravity, the dead moved with purposes of their own. As the graves of Carl Hendricks's dozens of victims gave birth to shambling nightmares of decaying flesh and bone, the hideous acts that had been inflicted upon them in death were plainly evident in reanimated life. Missing limbs, gouged eye sockets, tortured, carved, rotting flesh, disemboweled torsos. Those who had been buried in the dirt helped those who had been interred in plastic storage bins. Those who still had legs carried those who didn't. The prostitutes, strippers, runaways, and abandoned all sensed his presence in the dark forest. The man who had stolen their lives. They shambled forward, bumping into trees, becoming tangled in underbrush. They marched as one, an army of the undead, solely intent on seeking their revenge. Somewhere, George Romero is laughing his ass off right now. Lydia thought as she made her way through the woods toward Lab 04. At least she hoped she was headed in the right direction. She'd had to leave the relative safety of the stream behind, but she'd wet her shirt and held it over her nose and mouth to block the effects of the pollen. Twice now she'd stopped to study the map Seth had drawn for her. Two more times she'd broken radio silence to call in with the walkie-talkie. If her calculations were correct... Lab 04 was maybe a half mile northeast of her current position. She just had to get there in one piece. The woods were full of zombies. At least, that's what it felt like. Bloodthirsty zombies. She knew it had been self-defense, but she still tried not to think about the young boy she'd killed. She tried not to think about what the boy's head had sounded like when she'd hit it that final time with the metal pipe. Okay, maybe they weren't zombies, she conceded, as she worked her way down a hill scattered with underbrush. She walked carefully, trying to make as little noise as possible. They were kids, flippin' cub scouts. And there were a lot of them. Some traveling alone, others in packs like wild animals. 
She'd managed to avoid the rest of them so far, but she didn't know how much longer her luck would hold out. Shortly after killing Petey, she'd heard voices up ahead in the darkness and had slipped off the trail and ducked behind some trees. Three scouts carrying weapons. It was too dark for her to see clearly, but she caught a glint of metal so she knew at least one of them had had a weapon, marched past her hiding place. For a moment, she'd thought she was going to sneeze and give away her position, but fortunately, the feeling passed. She knew it was the only reason she was still alive. Not long after that, she'd heard footsteps crunching fallen leaves and scrambled to hide again. This time, it was a young boy walking alone on the path, and she got a good look at him. At first, she had been relieved to see that he wasn't carrying a weapon, But then, as he'd walked closer and she'd gotten a clearer view, her relief turned to horror. She'd been right. He wasn't carrying a weapon. Instead, he was carrying a bloody, severed head, swinging it happily back and forth like a kid walking out of a candy store with a bag of jelly beans. Ever since, she'd stayed off the trail, working her way northeast in a parallel route 20 or so yards deep in the woods. It was even darker here in the forest. Her legs were battered and bruised from tripping over things. It was too dark to see. Her bare arms and face were covered with cuts and welts from tree branches and thickets of thorn bushes she'd walked right into. Still, she felt it was safer than the alternative. Lydia stopped behind a tree to catch her breath and used her shirt to wipe snot from her dripping nose. The only thing that frightened her more than the zombies was the pollen. She was terrified it would take control of her and turn her into one of them. She was about to get moving again when she heard someone giggle in the darkness behind her. She froze. It came again. Childlike. Playful. Closer this time. She knew she had two choices— Find some place to hide and hope they walked right past her, or run. The giggling came again, and the sound was so disturbing, so mockingly evil, that Lydia's decision was made in that split second. She took off running. All pretense of stealth was out the window now. She moved fast and careless, crashing through the underbrush, slamming into trees, bashing her knee on a rock, crying out in pain. She ran and ran and ran until she couldn't run anymore. Lydia was in optimal shape from her interval running regimen. It wasn't her lack of fitness that caused her to stop and collapse to her knees. It was the choking fear that stole her breath away and made her feel like she was suffocating. Rivulets of blood streamed down her face, mixing with a fresh round of snot. Her right eye was swollen and red. Now, more than at any other point in this nightmare, she just wanted to lie on the ground, curl into a ball, and cry. But she knew she couldn't do that. Instead, she took a deep, calming breath. Ripley's got nothing on me, she whispered, refocusing. When she was ready again, she got to her feet and listened. The forest was silent, except for the faraway cacophony of screams and shrieks. She stood perfectly still and listened for several more minutes, just to be certain. Convinced the worst was behind her, Lydia keyed the walkie-talkie. Seth, 
Are you there? A burst of loud static interrupted the quiet. Shit, Lydia hissed, scrambling to turn down the volume. It must have been jostled when she was flailing around in the woods. Right here, came Seth's concerned voice. Are you okay? Lydia dropped to a knee again, glancing around for any signs of movement. Had a little bit of trouble, but I'm okay. What kind of trouble? I'll fill you in later. I had to leave the trail, though. I was moving parallel for a while, but now I'm afraid I might be lost. Which side of the trail are you on? The right side, heading toward Lab 04. Okay, that's the east side. Can you swing back northwest until you run into the trail and then start moving parallel again? Lydia thought of the boy on the trail carrying the severed head. She thought of the giggling in the darkness. I... I can try. Okay, listen to me. Once you find the trail again, I want you to call in and... Lydia clicked off the walkie-talkie, silencing Seth in mid-sentence. Someone was moving through the brush ahead. Slowly, stealthily, trying to be quiet. Lydia held her breath and switched the walkie-talkie to her left hand. She gripped the pipe with her right, tensing for action. The movement ahead stopped. Lydia pictured a pack of feral cub scouts waiting in the darkness, smiling at each other, making hand signals, anticipating the kill. A minute passed, and then another. Lydia pushed slowly up to her feet. The trail was somewhere off to her left, to the northwest. Should she creep as quietly as she could in that direction, or make a run for it? Before she could decide, the underbrush shifted again. She heard the ripping sound of cloth being torn by a tangle of thorns or a sharp tree branch. And then someone giggled, in the darkness directly in front of her. Lydia wanted to run. North, south, west, it didn't matter. She wanted to be anywhere but right there at that moment. But just like one of those stupid-ass victims in one of those stupid-ass horror films, her legs refused to work. She just stood there, paralyzed, mouth gaping, as someone pushed her way through the last of the underbrush and emerged in front of her. Hi, Lydia. And again, that playful giggle. Lydia blinked in the darkness, making sure her eyes weren't playing tricks on her. It was a woman she recognized from Hirsch Capital. She couldn't remember her name, but she knew that she worked in human resources. She knew that she dyed her hair red and drove a VW convertible. She was a nice lady. Oh, thank God, Lydia said, lowering the pipe and walking closer. I thought you were one of... That's when she saw the strange, hungry look in the woman's eyes. That's when she saw the blood and gore smeared around the woman's mouth and the gardening shears in her hand. Carl sneezed into his fist, trying to swallow the sound and be as quiet as possible. A short time earlier, while eluding the slime woman, he had slipped and fallen into a creek, soaking his pants, socks, and boots. Then he'd started with the sneezing. He was either catching a cold on top of the rest of this shit show, or it was the pollen. The damn stuff was everywhere. He had managed to lose his pursuer, 
but now Carl was good and lost himself. He had no idea in which direction his truck was parked. And creek or no creek, he stank of urine. He still couldn't believe he had pissed himself. Even more embarrassing was the knowledge that he'd given in to fear and panic. Carl didn't know why God had chosen this time to abandon him. It had never happened before. Had he somehow made God angry? If so, he didn't understand how. He had listened to his voice and picked up the hitchhiker. He had listened and cleansed the girl of her sins and then buried her deep in the forest. And when he'd heard the distant screams of agony and cruel pleasure echoing in the woods, he had listened to his voice telling him to retrieve his knife and follow the screams. But no matter how hard he prayed now, his God remained silent. Perhaps this is a test, he thought. And then he sneezed again. Wiping his nose with a meaty forearm, he picked up his pace down the path he was following. His wet boots squished with every step he took. He just knew he was going to end up with blisters on his feet. Carl hated blisters even more than he hated splinters, and he'd already gotten a couple of bad ones from the dead tree limb he was carrying. He wished he hadn't dropped his knife earlier. The woods around him had gone quiet a short time ago. No more screams of joy or pain, at least not for the moment. He hoped this was a good sign. A sign that whatever madness had descended upon this forest was over. Everything would be okay. He'd find his truck soon, head to a motel for a nice dinner and hot shower. A nice, clean bed would feel so good on his beat-up body. He rounded a bend in the trail, and a boy stood in his way. Carl stopped and raised his club. The boy had dark curly hair and wore glasses, which sat crooked on his nose. One of the lenses was missing, the other was a spider web of tiny cracks. The boy was barefoot and shirtless. A hatchet dangled in his right hand. Hey now, Carl said, lowering the club and slowly moving over to the opposite side of the trail. Let's just pretend you and me didn't even see each other, okay? You go your way, and I go mine. The boy cocked his head and growled. Something dark was smeared on his teeth. Carl inched over, giving the boy a wider berth. Nice and easy, he said. Just a couple more seconds, and I'm on my way out of here. The boy bared his teeth and made that deep growling sound again, but he didn't move didn't even turn around to watch Carl's progress. And that's when Carl raised the log and smashed it into the back of the boy's head. The cracking sound reminded Carl of long-ago summer afternoons playing baseball with his friends. The boy toppled to the ground and didn't move. Carl hit him again, three more times, just to be sure. And then he headed down the trail again, boots squishing, eyes scanning the shadows. No matter how hard she tried, Lydia couldn't take her eyes off the garden shears. Clumps of tangled hair and torn flesh clung to the twin blades. Thought you were one of them, Lydia finished, trying to make her voice sound as normal as possible. But it didn't matter. 
The woman from Human Resources giggled again, and then she lunged at Lydia with the garden shears upraised. Lydia spun away and swung the pipe as the woman charged past her. It landed a glancing blow on the woman's shoulder, but did nothing to slow her attack. The woman turned and charged again, and this time, Lydia was ready. She sidestepped, ducked, and swung the pipe again, directly at the woman's legs. It connected with a satisfying thunk, and the woman dropped to the ground, squealing in pain and clutching at her knee. Lydia backed away slowly, weighing her options. Finish her off or take out her other knee and prevent her from following. Jesus, I really do sound like Ripley. And then the decision was made for her. The bushes in front of her exploded, and a dark figure rushed forward and leaped on the woman who was still sprawled on the ground. A knife flashed. Once, twice, three times. The woman cried out, and then there was nothing but a wet, gurgling, choking sound. Lydia sank back into the shadows between the trees, and when the young boy with the butcher knife started sawing at the woman's neck, she took off running. She's not answering, Seth said. Something's wrong. Try again, Daddy, Gwen pleaded, her little hands clasped together. Please. Seth keyed the walkie-talkie. Can you hear me, Lydia? Come in, Lydia. He released the call button and listened to the quiet hum of static. Nothing. He started pacing. Maybe the battery died, Taylor said. Or maybe she turned it off. You heard what she said about radio silence? What if she's dead? Gwen asked. Seth sat next to his daughter and placed his hand over hers. Don't think that, honey. Think good thoughts and they will... Seth, are you there? Seth almost dropped the walkie-talkie in his hurry to answer. I'm right here. Are you okay? What's going on? Where have you been? What happened to you? Whoa, slow down. I'm okay. At least, I think I am. What does that mean? It means a lot has happened, but I'm still alive and kicking and heading for the black box. Can I talk to her? Gwen asked, tugging on her father's arm. Not right now, honey. Please tell Gwen I'm okay. I'm sorry I had to click off before, but... What in the heck is that? Taylor said, jerking to his feet and pointing at one of the still-functioning monitors on the wall. Seth and Gwen looked up at the high-definition screen. Is that a... Seth hesitated. A bear? Taylor finished for him. Doesn't look like any kind of bear I've ever seen before, Gwen said. On the monitor, the bear disappeared into the underbrush that bordered Lab 04. Hello? What's going on? Lydia asked. Seth stared at the walkie-talkie in his hand. For a moment, he had forgotten he was holding it. Listen to me very carefully, Lydia. If you're getting close to Lab 04, you don't have much time. I know this is going to sound crazy, but there's some kind of a... bear. A what? Did you say a bear? I know it sounds insane. Not any more insane than all the other things I've seen today. Good point. But how can you possibly know that? One of the security cameras outside the lab is still working. We're watching the monitor right now. How the hell am I supposed to defend myself against a grizzly bear? I have a pocket knife and a piece of metal pipe, for Christ's sake. I don't know. He looked over at Taylor. The boy shrugged. Seth glanced at Gwen. She appeared on the verge of tears. It'll be okay, honey. 
be key to the walkie-talkie. Maybe if you create some kind of diversion, you can get inside and lock yourself in. I'm a runner, sure, but I've never raced a goddamn bear. Maybe draw it away from the lab and make a break for it, Seth added. Wait a minute, she said. I think I might have an idea. What is it? What are you going to do? Seth asked. No time. I think I hear something. Lydia, wait. Gwen tugged on her father's arm again. What's wrong, Daddy? Lydia said. Say a prayer this works. There was a loud click, and then only static. Seth keyed the walkie-talkie. Hello? Lydia, are you there? He keyed it again. Hello? More static. He looked at Gwen and Taylor and placed the walkie-talkie on the table. She's gone. Say a prayer this works. Lydia clicked off and shoved the walkie-talkie into her pants pocket. She reached into her other pocket and pulled out the plastic bottle full of kerosene and the matches that Taylor had given her. She dropped to a knee, placed the bottle on the ground next to her, and quickly stripped off her shirt and removed her bra. Unlike her shoes, shirt, and pants, the bra was still relatively dry. She wrapped the cloth around the top of the metal pipe and tied it into a thick knot. She struck a match and carefully lit the bra. Then she doused it with kerosene. Once it had caught and the flames had spread, she stuffed the empty water bottle in her back pocket again. The plastic made a crunching sound. Then she stood up and held the makeshift torch in front of her. The warmth of the fire felt good on her arms and face. She'd remembered once reading somewhere that bears were afraid of fire. Or maybe it was wolves, she thought, stepping out onto the trail again. The flames cast dancing shadows all around her as she walked. It made her a target for anyone lurking nearby in the woods, but what choice did she have? She knew from the old sign she had stumbled across a short time ago that Lab 04 was just a brief distance ahead, which meant the bear was close. Given the choice of confronting a rabid cub scout or a grizzly bear, she'd pick the cub scout every time. A rustling noise sounded from the underbrush on the far side of the trail. Lydia readied herself for action. In her right hand, she held the torch. In her left, the pocket knife. She scooted to the opposite side of the path and kept walking. Another rustling, this time on the near side of the trail, just up ahead. Someone, or something, was tracking her. Lydia moved over to the center of the path and picked up her pace. If the bear came after her now, her hope was to hold it off with the torch long enough to safely reach Lab 04. She thought that plan might actually work if the bear appeared behind her, but if it emerged ahead of her on the trail, between her and the lab, then she was shit out of luck. She would never be able to get around it and outrun it. Goosebumps rose on her arms at the thought. A cry sounded in the night, far behind her. She couldn't tell if it was a scream of agony or ecstasy. She couldn't even tell if it had come from a man or a woman. She glanced over her shoulder and fought back a sneeze, rubbing at her nose with the back of her hand. She walked several minutes longer, her heart feeling like it was going to leap right out of her chest, and then the trail started to slope steeply downward. 
she was forced to watch the ground where she was walking, lest she trip over one of the many rocks or roots crisscrossing the path, which is why she didn't see the bear shamble onto the trail. When she finally did look up and see it, the bear was standing on its hindquarters no more than a dozen yards away. She froze. The bear was unlike anything she had ever seen before, in real life or on a movie screen. And it was enormous. At first, she thought it was some kind of bizarre mutation. Science gone mad, created here, inside one of the laboratories. But then she saw the tangles of stuffing sticking out of its arms and torso and the dangling button eye, and she knew this thing wasn't a result of any human experiment. It was her worst nightmare, and it stood directly between her and Lab 04. She waved the torch, hoping to buy some time to formulate a plan. A low, rumbling growl came from deep within the bear's throat, but it held its ground and didn't advance. It was then that Lydia realized there was a human arm dangling from its mouth. The bear had been gnawing on it like a dog with a rawhide bone. Lydia gripped the pocket knife in her left hand, knowing it was useless against this creature. She stole a glance at the edge of the trail, trying to determine if the woods were clear enough for her to make a break for it. But she knew she was kidding herself. If she tried to run, the bear would be on her in a matter of seconds. And then she remembered the first film festival she had ever gone to, in downtown Seattle. When the time had come to attend, she'd been petrified of meeting so many people face to face. She'd forced herself to pack a suitcase and get on the bus and go, and she'd ended up having the time of her life. But it wasn't the people or the convention she was thinking of now. It was one of the movies she had seen that weekend, a low-budget affair called Dark Woods, shot in Canada by a brother and sister writer-director team. In the movie, a family of four on a camping vacation was being tracked through the backwoods by some kind of mutated beast created by an environmental spill. The special effects had sucked big time, but the script had been decent, and the movie had been tense and effective. In the final scene, Lydia remembered how the heroine mom had defeated the mutant creature and saved her family. It just might work, she thought, continuing to wave the torch in front of her. Then again, it might be suicide. Before she could chicken out and change her mind, Lydia hurled the pocket knife at the bear, striking it on one of its stuffing-filled shoulders. The bear grunted in surprise and looked to see what it had been hit with. And then Lydia was charging full speed at the nightmare creature. Before the bear could react, Lydia collided with its lower half and wrapped her free arm and legs as tight as she could around one of the bear's hind legs. With her other hand, she pressed the torch flame against the bear's torso, praying it would catch. The bear roared and tried to shake her off. The human arm it had been chewing on plummeted to the ground. The grisly morsel bounced off Lydia on its way down. The creature swiped at her with a massive paw, but only managed to graze her back. She was too close, her face almost buried in its soft belly. Lydia's back felt warm and wet as her blood began to trickle. The smell of burning hair and something else, 
something man-made, filled her nostrils. And then she remembered the stuffing. It was catching fire. She looked for one of the openings she had seen earlier where the stuffing had protruded, found one near the top of the creature's leg, and shoved the entire length of the torch inside the bear. Then she let go with her legs and free hand and went flying through the air before crash landing 10 yards deep in the woods where she slammed into the trunk of a tree and crumpled to the ground. Her head ringing, she scrambled to her feet. The bear roared on the path, ropes of dark saliva flinging from its hideous jaws and started spinning in circles, swatting at its legs and torso as the flames spread and crawled up its body. Lydia crept through the woods until she was past where the fiery creature was flailing at itself, and then she rejoined the path and made her break. She realized her nose was running and her eyes had begun to itch. The pollen, she thought. Behind her, an otherworldly bellow shattered the dark forest. It sounded more like thunder on a stormy night than a sound any living creature could make. And she ran faster. She risked a backward glance and wished she hadn't. The bear was chasing her. Fully engulfed in flames now, it was a creature out of every bad dream she'd ever had, every monster movie she'd ever watched. It roared again, not from pain this time, but from rage. It was closing the distance between them. Lydia pumped her arms and ran faster. think she's okay? Gwen asked. Seth was pacing again. I hope so, honey. He turned to Taylor. Anything on the monitors yet? The boy shook his head. Not yet. No sight of the bear? Nothing. Taylor suddenly turned his attention away from the monitor and stared at the jar on the desk next to him. Then he snatched the jar up and peered intently at the dead moth inside. Gasping, he jumped out of his chair. What are you doing? Gwen asked. Taylor held up the jar. The tiger moth. I thought it was dead, but its wings are fluttering. It's not very active, though. We need to let it outside. Gwen shook her head. You better not. Holding his finger to his lips and glancing at her father, Taylor crept toward the entrance. If I open the door for only a second, I can free it before it really does die. I'm pretty sure it was dead. Gwen whispered. Obviously not. The boy hurried to the door and opened it. Hearing the hinges creak, Seth turned around. Hey, Taylor, don't do that. It's okay, Mr. Bailey, I just need to help this moth. With the door wide open, Taylor hurriedly unscrewed the jar lid, and the moth flew free. Its movements were sluggish, but it fluttered into the night. Taylor, shut the door, now. Seth struggled to keep his tone calm, afraid that if he hollered at Taylor, it might trigger him. The boy's plaintive, pleading tone had hinted that he was more traumatized than he was letting on. Taylor, Gwen said, getting up from her chair. Do what my dad says. Seth picked up a length of metal pipe he had found in the storage room and hurried across the room. He gently pulled Taylor back from the opening. The night seemed to press in as if seeking entrance to the bunker. He felt the cool caress of a breeze and listened. The woods were silent, 
The forest was pitch black. He waved a hand in front of his face. He couldn't see a thing. Everything okay? Gwen called. He ducked his head back inside. Everything's fine. You stay there, okay? Okay. And the moth, Mr. Billy? Taylor asked. Do you see it? I'm sure he's just fine, Seth answered. Seth gazed out at the forest again. His eyes were adjusting to the darkness, and he could just make out tall, darker shadows within the other shadows that he knew were trees. The breeze came again, a little stronger this time, and he could smell a hint of smoke on its wings. Something somewhere was burning. He hoped it wasn't the forest itself. So much had happened in the past twelve hours. Somewhere deep inside, Seth was still wrestling with accepting it all as reality. It felt like a dream. A very detailed, lifelike, horrific dream. He was grateful that Gwen and Taylor were safely at his side, but he was worried sick about the other chaperones, not to mention the other scouts. When they got out of this mess, if they got out of it, they were all going to have enough stories to tell to last a lifetime of camping trips. It occurred to him that he wasn't being very responsible right now. With everything that was happening, it probably wasn't the safest move to stand here with the door open. He was grateful for the fresh air, and releasing the moth seemed to alleviate some of Taylor's building anxiety. It had cleared his mind. But with that clarity came the awareness that Gwen's and Taylor's lives were in his hands. What the hell was he doing, opening the door like some idiot in one of Lydia's horror movies? Suddenly anxious to get back to the monitors with Gwen and Taylor, Seth stepped back inside the bunker and started to pull the door closed. A filthy hand lunged out of the darkness and grabbed his wrist. Panic surging, Seth tried to free his arm, but the intruder's grip was too strong. Before he could bash it with the metal pipe, a second hand grasped his arm and yanked him outside the bunker. Seth swung the pipe in the darkness and felt it make contact. The hands released his arm and immediately lunged for him again, but missed. The man was wearing khakis and a button-down shirt and one Italian leather loafer. He was filthy, covered head to toe in mud and blood. He held a paintball gun by the barrel in one hand. Seth faced off against him, making sure to keep himself between the man and the bunker door. If he could just get back inside and lock the door before... The man charged wildly at him, swinging the paintball gun. Seth dodged backward and felt a rush of air as the gun passed less than an inch from his nose. He spun and tried to get the pipe up in time to block the next blow he knew was coming, but he was too late. The heavy gun stock flashed in the darkness and slammed into his head. Seth dropped to a knee. The world blurred and went even darker. Blood streamed into his eyes and mouth. He tried to spit it out, but it felt like he was choking. The man came closer and Seth heard him chuckling. It was an ugly sound. The man stopped and stood over him, his single bare foot inches from Seth's bowed head. Seth had just enough time to notice a Chinese character tattoo etched across the top of the man's foot and imagine him raising the gun for a killing blow. 
before he gripped the metal pipe in both hands and thrust upward, the jagged end slicing deep into the man's gut. The man stepped back with a whoosh of air and stared dumbfounded at the piece of metal protruding from his stomach. He dropped the paintball gun and tried to pull it out, but the pipe wouldn't budge. Seth didn't stick around to watch the rest. He staggered back inside the bunker and pulled the door closed and locked it. A wide-eyed Gwen ran up to him, mouth moving, arms gesturing. Taylor was right behind her, pointing at the monitor, screaming soundlessly. The bunker began to spin. Just before his world went black, Seth caught a glimpse of a flaming nightmare on the monitor. He thought, it's just a dream, just a dream. And then he thought nothing more at all. Carl was not a happy camper. He wasn't happy that he smelled like a urine-stained hobo. He wasn't happy that his boots were filled with crick water and his knees ached. He definitely wasn't happy that he had to kill the young boy back on the trail. It worried him that he hadn't known whether the boy was a true sinner or not. But hey now, self-defense was self-defense. But most especially, Carl wasn't happy that God was giving him the cold shoulder. He'd spent the better part of his life worshipping and serving the Lord. And for him to abandon him at this, his time of need, was a savage slap to the face indeed. And then he saw it up ahead in the distance. His truck. His home away from home. And all his misery disappeared. Oh, thank you, sweet Jesus, he muttered, eyes growing moist with gratitude. He limped toward the tractor trailer, already picturing his motel room with the warm shower and soft bed. But first things first. As soon as he climbed up into the cab, he was going to take his cell phone out of the glove compartment and call his wife back at home. Her loving voice would be just the ticket right about now. Carl stopped and stared at his truck. The driver's side door was wide open. He thought about his special toolkit sitting in the passenger seat footwell and the souvenirs he had taken from the hitchhiker just hours earlier and left in the storage cab. This wasn't good at all. If anyone's in there, you better come on out. I'm armed, he lied. Nothing stirred. He walked closer. I'm carrying. You better come on out of there. A dark figure climbed awkwardly out of the cab and just stood motionlessly by the open door. Carl couldn't identify it as a man or a woman, but he could see well enough to tell the person was skinnier than a scarecrow. This will be a piece of cake, he thought, advancing again. Just stay right there and... A second dark figure emerged from the darkness in the front of the truck. A third and a fourth shambled toward him from the rear of the tractor-trailer. And then there were too many to count, all seeming to somehow melt out of the darkness, surrounding him. What the holy blazes is going on here? Who are you people? The headlights flashed on. Standing there, bathed in the twin beams of harsh light, was Allison. Allison. 
the hitchhiker he'd picked up earlier in the day and killed. No, 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 he cried. This, this is impossible. He looked around at the others, at their rotting and scarred faces, missing limbs, mutilated torsos, skeletal remains, and realized with a jolt of horror that he recognized many of them. He started to cry then, tears washing the blood and grime from his face, cleansing everything but his soul. Allison stepped toward him. Remember me? She asked through a ruined mouth. Long strips of flesh were missing from her face. She was holding the same pair of pliers Carl had used on her just hours earlier. Carl saw the pliers and turned to run, but the path into the woods was blocked by at least another dozen figures standing shoulder to shoulder. He searched their faces and recognized a hiker he picked up years ago in Nevada, a singer-songwriter runaway from Seattle, a lost little girl from right here in Silverwood. He spun back and saw with mounting dismay that the others had gotten closer. One of them, a teenage girl with all her teeth missing and her long blonde hair still up in a ponytail, was carrying a bone saw from his special toolkit. Another, one of the few young men he'd counted among his victims, a pickpocket from Portland, Oregon, was carrying a screwdriver in one bony hand and a battery-powered drill in the other. Remember... Allison said, dirt spilling from the corner of her mouth. I get him first. The rest of you have to wait your turn. Carl felt the sharp bite of a blade slicing into his Achilles tendon. He screamed and dropped to the ground. Take your time. A familiar voice hissed. We want him to last all night. And then... They were on him. Lydia tripped and went down hard on her chest and face. Ignoring the fresh burst of pain, she immediately pushed herself up and kept going. She could just make out a large, block-shaped building farther ahead on the trail. If her calculations and Seth's map were correct, it would be Lab 04. She glanced over her shoulder and cringed at what she saw. The bear was only a dozen yards behind her now. Flames danced high into the dark night. Thick smoke trailed behind it. But it was slowing down. And deteriorating. One of its long, furry arms had completely burned away. The button eye was gone, replaced by twin tendrils of fire. Almost there, Lydia thought. She pumped her arms for the final stretch, finding her rhythm again, and risked another backward glance. The bear was no longer running. It staggered and stumbled, its one remaining arm held out in front of it, like a blind man feeling his way in the dark. The creature abruptly stopped, swayed back and forth, tottered, and then collapsed face first onto the trail, sending up a shower of tiny sparks into the night air. Lydia stopped in awe of the sight. She stood there, catching her breath, and watched the strange creature burn down to nothing but a glowing pile of ash. She turned and walked the final 50 yards to Lab 04. She stepped up onto a concrete platform, nearly buried beneath fallen leaves. 
Near it was a deep puddle of muddy rainwater. Kneeling, she tugged the empty, scrunched-up bottle from her back pocket and filled it up. She screwed the cap back on tightly and crossed the concrete platform. Then she encountered a chain-link fence with razor wire stretched along the top. She made her way around it until she found an open gate. Lydia passed through and approached the large structure. She stumbled, gasping when she came across the butchered remains of an older man. At least, she thought it was a man. It was hard to tell, given the condition of his body. Okay, she whispered. You can do this. Just before she reached the door, she sneezed. You're listening to Silverwood by Richard Chismar, starring Neil Helligers and Sarah Malo Christensen. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Silverwood is written by Brian Keane, Richard Chismar, Stephen Kozanewski, Michelle Garza, and Melissa Laysan. Based on Silverwood by Tony E. Valenzuela. It is produced by Lydia Shama and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, and editing by Amanda Rose Smith. Theme music by Brandon Roberts.